The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Anthony Curry with Reuters Breaking Views in New York. Water security is one of the most important issues facing the planet. By 2050, almost 6 billion people could be facing either scarcity or flooding, according to a report by the United Nations this week. Solving these issues, though, won't come cheap. Some $12 trillion of investment is needed by 2030 to ensure most people and businesses will have sustainable supplies of usable water. With World Water Week upon us this week, I spoke to Kate Lamb, head of water for CDP, a climate non-profit working with investors and companies. She and I discussed the challenges ahead and what's being done to speed up the flow of change. Kate, thanks very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So, Kate, um, I mean, most people know CDP uh, for what it was started for, so carbon disclosure. Water, though, has become a very big part of what CDP does. You, you act mostly on behalf of investors. Can you just give us a brief outline of, of where CDP plays in the water space uh, before we jump into talking about World Water Day itself? Certainly. Um, CDP developed our water security program as a reflection of the need to drive some further um, significant strategic change within the markets themselves. While there are a number of amazing NGOs operating within the river basins and catchments and countries where action is fundamentally needed in order to protect this precious resource, um, it was recognised that some strategic shifts would be needed within the capital markets if we were to really transform our approach to uh, to water management in general. Uh, and that's where CDP steps in. So wh- where do you see, I mean, how would you characterise um, the problems that water faces in, oh, as you were saying, the capital markets. But I mean, how, how do you how do you quantify that in a number? Well, luckily, uh, just this week, a recent analysis was published by the OECD, which provides a sort of a partial estimate of the scale of the current global economic losses related to the situation that we're facing. Um, And I can spout off a few of those numbers for you now, but uh, we have 260 US billion dollars per year from inadequate water supply and sanitation. $120 billion per year are lost from urban property flood damages and $94 billion per year uh, is lost as a result of water insecurity to existing irrigators within agriculture. And the World Bank predicts that this situation, exacerbated by climate change, could cost some of the world's regions up to 6% of GDP by 2050 and lead to sustained negative growth in some regions of the world if we fail to act to address it. Right. Now, of course, that also comes on the back of some pretty steep increases in population by 2050, which is now is, I know is how a lot of uh, NGOs often put that. And that population could grow to, what, 9, 10 billion on the planet by mm-hmm. then. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, it's a growing population and increasing economic activity coupled with declining water quality in many regions has ultimately resulted in increased competition for water in both the public and the private sectors. While the term water scarcity is frequently heard, we're really more specifically experiencing greater competition for water. It's important to remember it is a finite resource for which there really is no alternative. While we have multiple different sources of of energy, solar, wind, nuclear, biomass, coal, if you're into that, uh, oil and uh, and natural gas, of course, as well, there really is only one source of of water uh, and it is finite. 
And of course, our demand for that water is closely linked to economic growth. As we grow wealthier, the more fresh water we require to supply cities, power plants, factories, and of course, the production of high protein foods such as dairy, meat and fish. Did you know, Anthony, that during the 20th century, while population grew by a factor of four, fresh water withdrawals grew by a factor of nine. So if we take these past patterns into account and look forward, the outlook, unfortunately, for 2030 is pretty stark. OK, so so let's let's bring companies and investors into this. This is where you spend a great deal of your time. And I know there's a, the, the annual survey is just but one thing that you do, but you, the big annual survey you do, it, it contacts thousands of companies on behalf of investors with, what is it now, almost $90 trillion of assets right. under management. So you, you, are, you are right at the centre of... Of how those with the money and the and those with the wherewithal, leaving governments aside, can play in this. So, what is it you're seeing about how both sides, or these two sides of the equation, should I say, um, play in this? Well, it's it's certainly encouraging, um, and there are certainly pockets of of great and excellent practice. But arguably, we're not winning the game at the moment, and so uh, more still needs to be done. And the response to the situation really is multifold. A large and growing number of the companies that engage with CDP are recognising that the real value of water resides not in the price that they pay for it, because really that's just like it's merely noise on a profit and loss sheet, if I'm being completely honest. Um, But instead, the real value of water resides in business continuity, securing your your real, your legal or your social licence to operate. And of course, brand value and trust in that brand. And the situation of worsening water security really does for many of these companies, and they're recognising this, it presents an urgent and strategic threat to their ability to do business both today and in the future. And excitingly, you've mentioned the large uh, number of institutional investors whose uh, who's on behalf we, we operate. Um, they've also woken up to this risk and are, are taking steps to begin to understand what the implications of this are for their, their investment decisions. Despite all of this, however, and despite this translating into greater levels of awareness, it is, in my opinion, not necessarily yet translating into genuine transformational action. Most of these stakeholders assume that incremental change, so a little more of what they were doing already, a little faster and perhaps a little more inclusively, will suffice. But right now, as I think I've already made clear at the start of our programme, we're really not succeeding And some of the sustainable development goals of delivering clean water, along with other goals around no poverty and zero hunger, these are exponential goals that cannot be solved with linear solutions. Right. So where does that begin to change then, do you think? Let's just stick with the companies here. I mean, is it about which parts of the company are involved and who they report to? So how how often are boards involved? How often do, do people involved in water sustainability report directly to the CEO or the chairman, for example. I mean, do you see that impacting how progress is being made slowly or quickly? Yes, absolutely. The, the, the strategic ownership of water within companies is a factor that we focus on very, very strongly with the objective ultimately of ensuring that the, the strategic value of the resource is recognised and somebody on the board is ultimately accountable for ensuring that the business growth strategies and development plans take into account the implications of the of the business activities on this precious resource. We've seen just this week, uh, I think it was this week, perhaps last week, 
analysis from CDP looking at our climate change data, um, where it, the, there was a large number of companies reporting that they had board level oversight of this issue, for example. However, too few uh, remuneration packages were actually tied to performance on climate change. And this is something that we're going to be looking at a little bit more closely within the water space as well as we as the program progresses over the next year or so, because clearly um, having accountability and oversight at the board is one thing. Having an owner at the board is one thing. Having their remuneration tied yeah. to improvements in performance over time on this issue will clearly drive uh, more rapid change, in our opinion. Mm. Um, let's flip to the investor side then. How are they getting involved in, in, in that kind of issue? I think here about, you know, obviously in America now, it's proxy season is beginning. Lots of votes are already beginning to happen. Um, and we saw one a couple of weeks ago where uh, on water specifically where Tyson Foods investors were looking for more information, purely more information. But because the family owns, I think, through, I think, super voting stock, they managed to... Um, to put the vote off, even though the majority of independent shareholders voted in favour of the resolution from another sh- that a shareholder put forward, do you see m- more of that happening? Whether it's to look at you know, how directors are involved, um, whether compensation packages cover sustainability in general. I mean, can investors and are investors already pushing for that rather than just pushing for information, which seems to have been what most have been doing for a while now, both in water and and I think more obviously for many people in in oil and gas. I think, as I said earlier, there are pockets of good practice um, and there are certainly, you know, the Tyson Foods, while it perhaps didn't go far enough and it was certainly disappointing that the proxy was, in a sense, derailed, um, the, 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 the demonstration of their interest in this issue for such a company is really positive and, and, mm. um, and a reason to be optimistic. We would like to see the narrative shift from please be more transparent to translating into tangible actions that the companies can take. And I think if we look at the trajectory that the carbon narrative has taken in the last few years around the Aiming for A campaign, for example, then I'm optimistic about the same level um, of action being taken on water. And of course, the landscape for institutional investors itself is changing, right? The pressure on these companies to now publicly disclosing certain geographies, France being one under Article 173, um, to disclose the environmental impacts of their funds and the actions that they're taking to integrate these issues into their um, investment strategies is in itself an empower, a, a very very powerful motivator to mm. that will I think be, I believe send have a ripple effect throughout the market. Once the accountability of the institutional investors themselves is increased, that of course will slowly trickle through or perhaps rapidly trickle through to the companies themselves. Mm. And we're seeing this as well in in, in way that certain institutional investors are pushing very hard. So. Uh, Norgas Bank Investment Management is pushing mm-hmm. for all manner of disclosure, including, I think, now starting to go after banks' lending books for more disclosure right. on all mm-hmm. manner of things to do sustainability. And we've seen um, you know, the, the big invest, uh, investment holdings of the likes of State Street uh, and BlackRock getting very heavily involved, even though they are passive funds for the most part and really can't sell, which is, of course, the ultimate um, way to, to express disapproval. Um, that's a relatively new shift, certainly from the passive funds. Have you seen that change how uh, companies and other investors are thinking now that there's this, you know, between the, the, the big three passive funds, they can own up to 20% of a company sometimes. That's a pretty powerful uh, tool to have at your disposal if they take your side. 
Absolutely. Uh, and we have very strong relationships with all of those institutional investors, as you know already, Norwegian, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and, mm. just, and BIM, Norges Bank Investment Management. <laughs> um, you know, they're the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. They've got around a trillion dollars in, in assets. Um, they have been funding CDP's water program for the last almost 10 years now. Um, and they've just recently uh, stated in a report that they want all 9,100 mm. companies that, it, that the bank invests in to disclose environmental data to CDP. I think the, the task force on climate-related financial disclosure, uh, led by Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg, has really galvanized, um, the, uh, uh, raised the, um, the consciousness of that community into the reality of the situation that we're facing. Um, and as a result, you know, the threats of a changing climate, the threats of worsening water security, the threats that are posed by the destruction of our forests are becoming increasingly apparent. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned forests because, of course, um, you know, OK, March the 22nd is World Water Day. But of course, March the 21st, possibly less well known, is the International Day of Forestry. Um, and I know that, that you and your um, cohort at the CDP who runs forestry, Morgan Gillespie, who also worked on water with you, put a good blog post out on this talking about the interaction of the two. Um, and it seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? If you think about some of the big issues we've seen around the world, which have caused well-known water scarcity issues. I think, you know, Melbourne 10 years ago, um, Cape Town now, um, uh, Sao Paulo three years ago, although that's coming back as well, all of them can be linked to for either forestry issues or to, I think in Cape Town states, it's invasive flora, eucalyptus trees have come in. Um, how much, uh, just talk to me how, how you think about the interaction of the two and what role that can play in getting investors uh, to play more of a, of a role. Sure thing. I, I mean, an interesting stat that I learned just yesterday was that 75% of the fresh water that we rely upon is dependent upon forests. And it, while it might seem obvious to, to, to those of us that are engaged in the subject, it isn't always obvious to, to, to everybody else. These two themes are really closely interlinked and they play an important role in regulating um, you know, the global ecosystems upon which we, we rely ultimately. Meanwhile, in Sao Paulo, conversion of the Amazon from rainforest to pasture, and this is pasture so that the country can produce increasing amounts of, of cattle products, soy and palm oil, um, has disrupted the macro water system that supplies the city. So it's heavily contributed towards the recurrence of droughts. And these are affecting 21 million people and impact companies with business operations mm. based in and around the city. It has a large number of companies, Unilever being one of them, disclosing that the impacts on hydroelectricity production uh, in 2015 in the, country, uh, in the region, their, their ability to gain electricity from their hydro was grossly affected. Um, and it's not just, obviously, in Brazil. We also have Jakarta. Um, you know, the, the Southeast Asia is a significant area of deforestation. A deforestation of, uh, of upstream watersheds has slowed the ability of local aquifers to recharge and it exacerbates flooding. And to date, this has resulted in a loss of 40 lives and cost $2.4 billion. Um, you know, it's when more than half of the world's population lives in cities and clearly a functioning urban environment is vital, not just for these residents, yeah but also for the stability and performance of the corporates that depend upon the same natural resources. Uh, we really do need to take a much more comprehensive nature-based approach to the way in which we uh, manage these issues. I mean, and that that's, I mean, brings us into the theme of, of World Water Day this week and every year the UN 
uh, which created World Water Day, comes up with the theme last year. For example, it was wastewater reuse. This year, it's nature-based solutions. Um, and again, this this seems rather obvious, doesn't it? If you look around the world, you can see you know there are many ways that you can sort out water scarcity or water issues. Let's say you could you could build a dam, you could spend a lot of money on a desalination plant, you could reuse water. But from what I've read, this is when I was looking at Cape Town. You've got you could spend far less sorting out the uh, the invasive flora that use up what I think at the moment is three months worth of emergency water supplies for Cape Town than you would have to spend creating water in any other way. Um, so why is it that you think that that no one's really or not enough people are looking at nature based solutions as a way to sort out a lot of these problems? Because it strikes me if you're a company or if you're an investor or a government. These can be some of the cheapest ways, at least on their own basis, to get this sorted. Absolutely. Um, and while I think it is a relatively new and, and uh, nascent topic for a number of companies, and perhaps the reason for that is that many of these landscapes fall far beyond the boundaries of their own factories, right? And the reason why we're in the, one of the reasons why uh, we're, we're focused on company action is because to date, their traditional approaches to water management have kept them within the fence line um, right. and have focused them on the infrastructure that they can control uh, and they can invest in and they can get loans for. And there's a, often a clear payback time linked to that infrastructure. And as I say, that often sits within the boundaries of their own operations. All of the interventions that we're talking about here with regards to nature-based solutions require a much more comprehensive um, engagement beyond the fence line. And that's not necessarily something that the companies have a whole lot of skills and experience in. Despite that, 60% of the companies that reported to CDP last year factored the status of the ecosystems upon which they rely, the river basins within which they, um, they reside, into their water risk assessments. That's up from 50% in 2050, sorry, 2015. And so we are seeing the role of um, ecosystem services and the role of nature-based solutions as a, as you said, a cheap and viable alternative to dealing with some of these issues. And there's a number of examples where this has been really successful. Um, there's the Vina Concha Itoro, uh, who are an organization uh, in Chile, and they have committed to conserving 100% of its 3,200 hectares of native forest in response to water-related challenges. And in Japan, Suntory Beverage and Food Company has a target to expand the area of its natural water sanctuaries to 12,000 hectares by 2020. Um, so it's, it, it is a very, very viable uh, alternative. It is very attractive. It has huge benefits for nature beyond our, our ability to conserve water resources. Of course, it has huge biodiversity mm. benefits, not to mention health benefits for us, those of us yeah. that have to inhabit the areas. Um, so I'm very excited by the call from, from the UN this week and hope that we can play an important role in continuing to motivate companies to explore these avenues before they dive into the grey infrastructure that they are so used to. Yeah. And is, is that, that must also be an issue, right? Because you know, it's, it's not just let's do what we can within our own walls. It's also we are used to dealing with this by using engineering products and projects. Um, so, you know, going from that into... 
you know, okay, we can maybe do a, a, a rain garden on our roof, or we can, you know, think about, you know, some other ways of sorting out flooding or scarcity issues within our, our little area. But, you know, often it, it doesn't require an engineering solution. It requires just much better planning on a, as you were saying, on a far broader basis than they used to. But they mm-hmm. do know it's important. I mean, but also so do investors, right? If, and I want to get to the, the idea of stranded assets in a minute. But if you're an investor in any of these companies that may be facing water risk, there's also, and especially if you are a so-called ESG investor and getting very interested in in showing you're doing a good job, investing in nature-based solutions must, sure ought to be an easy way to show to your investors and others that you're doing what should be considered to be a very good thing at pretty narrow, pretty low costs with a possibly very good return. So it's almost also, investors could get involved in this. Okay, it's not quite investing in stocks, it may be through green bonds through other parts of the organization, but there seems to be a correlation here that if they want to save uh, or not lose money on the stocks they own which are facing water risk, getting involved in the sort of broader water projects could be much more useful for them. Absolutely. It's a it's a, a surefire way in some respects to shore up the assets that are located in some of these more vulnerable locations. Um, and CDP has been working for the last two and a half years with the Climate Bonds Initiative series WRI and AGWA to create a climate bond standard for water infrastructure investment. Now, the standard looks at grey and nature-based solutions. It's the first such standard of its kind. There was a perception in the past that any investment in water is green uh, and evidence suggests that that is certainly not the case. And in most cases, water infrastructure investments have certainly not been low carbon and they've very rarely been resilient to changes in climate. The standard that we've created now will enable for the first time both bond issuers um, and the banks themselves and, and investment institutions themselves to ensure that the projects that they are investing in to improve water security in you know in particular the nature-based solutions type of project that they are both exploiting and and um, conserving as much carbon as possible um, Mm. but also that they are resilient to changes in climate that we're anticipating so we think providing these types of tools and mechanisms should help capital flow into these solutions much more swiftly than they have to date now, I, let's go look at the idea, as I mentioned earlier, of, of, of stranded assets. And for those who haven't seen this in the oil space, it's a, it's a, a pretty big issue in oil, right, where I think, I think a Barclays analyst said $33 trillion of oil companies' assets could end up being utterly useless uh, and worthless given the sub-two-degree Celsius goals under uh, the Paris Agreements. Water, it's a lot harder to put a figure on water, I think, just because obviously no one has a store of water that they value in the way they value oil. But there are so many examples, whether small or large, of companies, especially mines, I think has been the big one, mining companies, where poor access to water or not thinking about access to water before building a project has caused problems. But how big an issue is this? And is this an issue that can become as big or bigger than the oil companies are seemingly having to deal with? And and how do we sort that out from from a water perspective, given that there isn't an easy way to put a a, a trillion dollar figure on it like there is with with energy? Mm, I think it it is a tricky one. Uh, Like water, it's a a bit of a wicked problem. Um, One of the challenges, of course, is that water security issues are sporadic, you know, and some cases 
the tap runs dry, yes, you know, and that will cause an asset to to be stranded. In other cases, it's a it's a political decision or a regulatory decision that ultimately leads to the stranding of assets. We see with the Pascualama mine in Chile that um, it's an eight point five billion dollar mine that is now stranded. Mm. Now that's not because. They, the company ran out of water um, was because of concerns from the local population that the company would pollute and contaminate the groundwater upon which the community relies. And they applied pressure onto the regulators and the regulator withdrew the water abstraction license for the company. Now, had that company taken a, a slightly more proactive approach to engaging with regulators and the community before it broke ground to ensure it understood what some of their concerns would be and to provide confidence and comfort to those stakeholders um, that they were taking every measure to mitigate that risk. And um, then perhaps they may not have found themselves in that situation. Um, I personally think it is a much bigger issue than is currently uh, appreciated. I undertook some research a few years ago and we'll be re revisiting that this year to further explore where this is happening uh, and how it might play out and what sectors are particularly exposed. We see regulatory changes in China right now where the government is um, closing down factories if the company is failing to meet its obligations from an environmental perspective. So I think regulation is one to watch and is really where the rubber hits the road on this issue. OK, well, Kate, we should let you go in a second. Just just one last thing. Um, over the next few months, what is it you would look for most uh, from either companies, investors or both to give you a sense that, that the fight to make sure that we have a water secure future is going the right way at a decent enough speed? Mm. Well, I'd like them to disclose to CDP, of course. Of course. <laughs> We've just started our season of, of disclosure. And I think that being transparent on these issues, recognizing and being transparent on some of the challenges that you have, and as well as the solutions that you're pursuing, is really a demonstration of leadership in this space. And we need to see more companies responding. In addition, I'd like to see the ambition of these actors be raised, uh, recognizing that actually, we only have 12 years before we hit a supply demand gap mm -hmm. of 40%. 12 years, I'm sure you can remember, Anthony, what you were doing 12 years ago. Um, I know, I think I can at least, and and how old I will be. So I, I know, yes, I can remember very well, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, and, and how old will you be in 12 years time? It, it's not a long time at all. Um, and so as a result, we need to move away from incremental changes to something much more ambitious. I'd like to see breakthrough business models really coming through, um, moving away from taps and toilets, uh, well, not moving away, but recognizing that taps and toilets metering water uh, treatment is only one part of the equation. Um, the, the challenge around agriculture, I don't think we've thrown this stat out yet, but 70% of the world's freshwater withdrawals are for agriculture. And if we fail to address that issue, then we will fail in achieving our ambitions around water security full stop. So what is happening? Where are the innovations within the agricultural supply chain? You know, the, the, the impossible burger is, is something that's incredibly exciting. The move towards plant-based ingredients and plant-based meals is something that is very, very encouraging indeed and something that we would be, we hope to be exploring further. And when it comes to investors, 
I think we ultimately need to see more capital flowing towards those companies that are doing really well. Um, yes, there's an increased awareness that that needs to happen. We now need to st start seeing that capital flow. And an interesting example that's come out recently is Danone in their, um, in their annual reports this year reported that they had approached uh, 12 of the leading banks and have secured a lower cost of capital based on two, them achieving two objectives in the year. One is a B Corp certification for part of their business. And the other is um, a, a really great sustainability rating from Sustainalytics and, and Vigio Iris. That's the type of innovation that I think we need to see that will truly uh, galvanize action in this space. Excellent. Look, Kate Lamb, head of order at CDP, thanks so much for coming on. It's, it's been a pleasure and very interesting. Thanks, thanks again. Thank you. That's all for this week. The Exchange is produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. Please do subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you source your podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Do please tune in for the next edition.